Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Carpe Diem String Quartet is a boundary-breaking ensemble whose mission is to forge a new identity for chamber music by championing living composers, undertaking daring projects with other art forms, and promoting the healing power of music. They've earned widespread acclaim for their performances of standard repertoire, new music, genre-bending collaborations, and community engagement. Carpe Diem defies classification with programming and collaborations that encompass and blend new and old, including classical, Romani, tango, folk, pop, rock, jazz, and multicultural music. Their outreach performances, including Music Care, Music Goes to School, and Music from the Start, incorporate diverse and eclectic repertoire tailored to specific audience demographics, bringing their inspiring performances and outreach to diverse audiences such as the Apache Nation, to families at the Columbus Museum of Art, and residents at the Ohio Women's Reformatory. I'm excited to be joined by Carpe Diem members Charles Weatherby and Kareen Fujiwara. To start, I'd like to ask you, a string quartet is not only an ensemble, it's a family, a business, a way of life. Can you talk about your individual and unique roles at Carpe Diem? So Kareen and I are both, uh, the, we are the two founders of the quartet back in 2004, nice. actually 2005. We've had some wonderful collaborators. Unfortunately, as sometimes happens in quartets, sometimes for a lot of life reasons, you're not able to stay together, but you find new people to work with. So what are our roles? I mean, it's your role is kind of everything in a quartet. You're playing music, first and foremost. Um, you're thinking about programming. You know, Karina and I over the years have kind of been the executive directors of, an, of the organization in a, in a sense. We sometimes have to feel like we're um, grant writers. I mean, there's all these different aspects of trying to keep your your mission alive. And uh, it's not all just sitting down and playing, I guess. Yeah, I don't know, Kareen? I mean, development directors, box office managers, stage crew, light designer, sound designer, 
manager, cold caller, co-conspirator. And on the simple, I'm the violist and Chaz is the first violinist. And so the roles, uh, they also kind of are flexible. Sometimes one of us has something big going on. And so other members will take up the slack. And fortunately, we have some wonderful colleagues and everybody is willing to jump in full in. And uh, it's a partnership. It's a family. It's a complex relationship based on respect and trust. And um, it's kind of intimate in the music making in the so much like there's a mind meld that goes on sometimes. You know how people who've been in a relationship for a long time answer the their partner's questions. It's like that, but four ways. <laughs> it's very interesting. I don't think there's really, I don't think there's anything like it. It's a wonderful, complicated complex relationship. When you use the word family initially in your question, there are quartets, at least that I've read about, that um, seem to be much more of a business. They come together to rehearse from nine until noon or whatever it is, and they all need to meet in um, New York or LA or wherever it is. So they all arrive in the right city at the right time, but they take separate flights, they eat meals separately, they're not necessarily friends. I can't really imagine a quartet functioning that way. For for us and our two other members, uh, Marissa and, and Ariana, they are friends. Uh, the four of us, as Kareen said, we do enjoy co- each other's company. And we do like to have meals together. We do sometimes finish each other's sentences um, in, a, in a sense. But I know that quartets can work in different ways. I'm I'm really happy that ours works in this way. Well, it definitely sounds like that from from your recordings. You founded the group in 2005. Can you talk about the differences or unique challenges facing multidisciplinary ensembles who are sort of trying to bring not only classical music, but all these different genres to, to new audiences? The differences in 2005 and 2019. And can you also maybe discuss what did COVID teach you as classical musicians and entrepreneurs that others who might be listening to the beginning of this podcast, who may not get to the end of the show, could learn from? That's a lot of questions, um, a lot of information. Difference I try between, to pack them all in. <laughs> 2005 <laughs> to 2019 is like a, a million lifetimes in between those. In 2005, we were all living in the same state, all living in the same city, all living within a mile or so of each other. It's a very different quartet with a very different rhythm. In Columbus, um, Ohio. In Columbus, Ohio. Um, you fast forward five years, that's when we started moving out of Ohio, but still playing in Ohio and, and performing in Ohio. The life, the world, the economy, the classical music scene, the recording industry. I mean, I, everything has changed between 2005 and 2019. Uh, CDs to streaming then the pandemic, well, yeah, that was, we've been professional pivoters since we started because we all started as members of a symphony orchestra, full-time members of a symphony orchestra. And this was our, our passion thing. And um, that shifted until we were none of us members of the orchestra and we were doing the quartet full-time, which shifted and we all moved. To tackle one chunk of that at a time, Chaz, you want to jump in, <laughs> finish my sentence? <laughs> Well, I'll shift to the last part of your question a little bit, Evan. So, you know, the pandemic and what did it change? Well, of course, like everyone, we suddenly had to grapple with learning how to to make 
you know, either recorded concerts or streaming concerts. And, um, you know, like most smaller organizations, we can't hire people to do that for us. So we literally had to start buying some video cameras, get software, figure out how to hook up microphones, learn how to produce a nice quality, a nice quality video concert that people could enjoy. In our case, though, it actually led to something. And I should say that's even as we start seeing, you know, a return of of audiences, I think that aspect of doing more streaming, more recording, making your musical your music available, I think that's going to continue. I, ha- I think we all have that feeling. What impact that has when people can stay home still and watch things versus coming out to the concert hall, that's another story. But this also led to a more uh, individual project. We had actually received a grant and were in the midst of planning for a live concert that was going to involve the application of interactive software, most likely through people's smartphones, to allow them to offer real-time feedback while the concert was occurring that would actually allow us to make um, instantaneous changes in what was happening in the program. So almost as though while we're playing, somebody could either say speed up or slow down, or we were, this was, this was, we had this concept of trying to incorporate a kind of, a kind of live, as I said, sort of in real time audience participation that directly and instantaneously affects the performance. And then the pandemic hit. And so Kareen used the word pivot. We had to think of a way to turn this into an online digital project. And what we came up with is we've called the American, American story. And this is an interactive video project where we wrote all the music and the viewer who wants to listen and watch because there's visual art to go with it. There's a story being told and you have checkpoints through the story where you can make choices that direct the music as well as the art. You can, it's kind of like choose your own adventure, mm-hmm. basically except that it's with all this music that the four of us wrote. It's all original music. Um, and we, re- we performed and then put together with this artwork to help tell the story because sometimes music, as much as it is a language, is a little abstract, um, perhaps to, to really keep a plot <laughs> focused. We call it American Story because it became even more relevant to the time. It was a story of how all of us and all of our parents and ancestors basically immigrated to the United States. And um, it traces each member's family history. And each member did the research on their family history and followed a family member and made different choice points. Like, this is what actually happened. These are the things that could have happened. And so we we had the the storyline and then the potential offshoots and then the branches from there and the branches from the other. So it's a very complex thing. It was going to be really cool as a live performance, but I think it's also fascinating as an interactive video. And we actually still, now that now that we're going back to, to live concerts, we still plan to develop this concert into a live audience experience, but the pandemic really forced us to take on the challenge of adapting it to a strictly digital format. But also, again, we had to figure out how to make it. So we learned a lot from it. I think, yeah, I think it came out pretty cool. And that's one of the things I think is really cool about your quartet is you hear about, I mean, most quartets, you know, they're playing other people's music, Uh, you know, going back to when Haydn and Mozart were writing, they would play their own quartets, you know, and sit in the quartet. 
Um, and one of the things I'm always curious of is about that interaction between composer and performer. Uh, can you talk about when you're actually the one who composed the piece and is sitting in the quartet playing? Yeah, it's it's very humbling, actually. You've got no one to blame but yourself for the things that make you mad. Um, it's also thrilling to think uh, of a piece and create a sound world in my imagination and write it for the people who I know are going to be playing it. That's it's a it's a privilege. It's a rare thing, and then to be able to sit down and jump into the other side of my brain as a performer and have to kind of shut off the composer side and figure out what the heck did I just write here? Who, who is this crazy person that wrote this? But then to also listen to how, you know, it exists in, in imagination only until the performers have it. And then you inject the human element of each individual person and their idiosyncrasies and their lived experience and how that informs the choices that they make, which combines into something far greater than anything I could have imagined. And I thought it sounded pretty good in my head, but it, it's a mind-blowing experience to, to step back and hear how it becomes something even greater in the hands of my colleagues. I'm humbled and floored and honored every time it happens. And also, again, as a as a performer, I always appreciate the feedback. I I get honest feedback and clear feedback from my colleagues. And um, I think the more I write, the more I I really appreciate the voice of the person I'm writing for, whether it's a, a violin, a cello, a singer, a clarinetist, a guitarist. You know, I I, I want. I want my musical ideas to live in their voice. I don't want to foist a, a, a like a cookie cutter Korean Fujiwara thing onto someone. I, I want my music to come alive as them so that they can make it their own. So that, yeah, that's for me, my experience. I'll just kind of add a tangent, which, which Devin, I'm sure you can, you can appreciate and you can also weigh in on, which is kind of a spinoff. Our generation, our, the past generation, you know, it's become very, very important as musicians, as performers, and as interpreters, we're always talking about get a copy of the original score without editorial markings, try to realize as closely as possible, try to adhere to a composer's markings and do as, as closely as you can with what, what they say, right? And that is, of course, important, but kind of a, a I've had kind of a, a little bit of a, I don't know, either a modification of that idea or uh, an, I don't know if it's an insight. When I've written music in my quartet plays it, I realize that when you're playing it with with fingers and and uh, and bows and, and and vibrating strings and you're in a room that's so big, sometimes what you imagine with the best of your ability isn't quite right and you have to change it. Now, I'm no great shakes as a composer, but then I think, well, why is it that when we get to the 20th century and we have examples of composers who performed their music like Bartok notably or conducted their music, I mean, Shostakovich, Walton, Britton, many others, why is it that we often find, if we're looking for it, if we're looking closely, we find discrepancies between what they wrote and what they did. And I think it's the same thing. Yeah. So as important as it is in, to interpret, to try to interpret a composer's intentions, I think knowing that when it's in real life, in a room, that sometimes things have to sometimes just be a little different because they feel different. I, I've, I've come around to feeling like that's more 
has more to legitimacy than I probably did when I was younger. The idea, like Chaz is saying, is how we take the the ink on the page as the literal word that we must follow. It also humbles me as a composer thinking, well, shoot, I'm usually sitting in my quartet saying, yeah, I forgot I didn't write a slur there. Could you put a slur there? And hey, I know I didn't put any dynamics there, but you know what I mean, right? Oh, you don't know what I mean? Okay. So it's, it's uh, taught me a lesson about like if people are going to be really, really literal, if I'm not there to say, hey, I'd like this soft, I, I actually do need to put careful edits. But on the same token, I don't want to um, put people in a box also, mm -hmm. because that's that, that kind of magical place where you give enough information that there, there's this is the nucleus of an idea, but then I want your imagination to take it to the next level. I think that's an important part of the equation as a performer and as a composer that you you don't you you want to get the idea there, but you don't want to take away the the imagination of the performer. Yeah, and we have a really good example. Um, you both have experience or you come to the string quartet from the orchestra field. Kareen, you as a, as a, as a principal second, I believe you, you were principal second of the Columbus symphony Act, and acting assistant act, principal, acting assistant. <laughs> and, um, and, and Charles, you obviously have played concert master principal second and you solo with orchestras all around the world. And you have this collaboration in the storyteller, which is uh, one of Kareen's pieces based on Japanese folk tales, uh, talking animals, magical creatures, and great <laughs> battles with samurais and ogres that your father would uh, talk to you about as a child. Can you kind of talk about, this was written for, for Charles, I assume. Can you, can you talk about that collaboration between composer and violinist? We, we have you know, historical examples of Brahms and Joachim, uh, Joachim you know, giving advice to Brahms, which he never really much listened to, and uh, Leopold Auer, who wouldn't play uh, Tchaikovsky's violin concerto because he didn't listen to him. Um, I would imagine your collaboration, uh, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because you already are so intricately interwoven as your sort of familial connection uh, quartet-wise. Uh, can you talk about that relationship and that the development of the storyteller? Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy because for the most part, I just play whatever she writes and unless it's just so impossible. I say, oh, please, 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 is there uh, another solution to this? <laughs> but the beautiful um, thing about it is he can play anything I write, which is kind no, of no, fun. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it is It is nice. Um, you know, the thing is, is that in Corrine's case, she's also, of course, such a such a great um, violinist and, and, and violist. So there is an advantage to someone who plays an instrument as well as she does. She already knows so well what she's writing and what can work, how it'll work, how it's possible. It's a little different, um, I think, when, you know, for instance, the Mendelssohn's first version of the violin concerto, and you look at the cadenza and there's almost nothing there. And then David obviously had a big hand in helping him sort of realize, you know, all the arpeggiation and how, and, and, uh, how, that, could, how, how that could fit. Mendelssohn almost just wrote out a chord sequence and almost nothing else. So in, in this case, I had the advantage of a composer who really, really understands the instrument. I, I think from my perspective, it was, I mean, it's very similar in that I know Chaz, I know he's playing, I know his work ethic, and I know that he's very honest and brutally honest if he, if he needs to be, you know, it's a good working relationship. 
writing it, um, I was doing a lot of imagining of these folk tales and trying to illustrate them in sound. I think the challenge sometimes is trying to figure out the balance between the instruments, between the groups of instruments. And it, in this case, um, this collaboration originally was going to be for a full orchestra, not just a string orchestra, mm -hmm. but um, got a notification from the National Gallery. It was the National Gallery Orchestra. I think there was a, a government shutdown or there was something in which the budget was changed and, and I didn't want the piece to get canceled. So I said, oh, how, how about what if we just make it strings? What if we make it strings? Then it can happen, right? Right. So yeah, all the woodwinds, all the brass, everything got cut down. So then- It was like, like a prelude, prelude to COVID or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it was like practice pivot. Yeah. <laughs> but I did scale, I did change it. I had the first movement fleshed out differently and uh, was edited to make sure that it would go on. And with the hope that it could be done with a small string section, which the, the premiere was very small. I think it was a three or four, four, three, two, maybe one bass, oh, maybe two bases wow. actually. Yeah. It was very small. And it has been performed with quite a large orchestra mm -hmm. as well. And um, I, I think the, the collaboration is, I, sometimes there are things like, is this ending, do you like the way this ending goes? Jazz would say, you know, maybe it should have a little bit more pow. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean about pow? How about this? Well, okay, how about that? Oh, okay, how about this? Ah, that's it. So it's a very open relationship with the idea of how can we make this even more effective as a piece? I realized I didn't really um, go from the beginning, which is how it came to be that I commissioned Corrine to write the concerto in the first place. And basically I had been thinking about, you know, so I, I do play a lot of contemporary music I have over the course of my life. And I love contemporary music. A lot of contemporary music is very beautiful. A lot of it is very challenging, but a lot of it is also not written with, a kind of idiomatic idea of the instrument in mind. And I have to admit, I've maybe because from when I was a student, I have a I have always had and still have a real soft spot for violin concertos that were written kind of for the violin. They have that element of really being written to take advantage of what the instrument can do. There's an element of virtuosity, there's an element of lyricism two qualities that the violin is, is very well suited for. And Corrine had written some solo violin caprices that I had played. And I, so I already had an idea of how she would tackle the idea of sort of, you know, virtuosic violin writing. And so when I, when I had the opportunity to, to think about commissioning a concerto, in this particular case, I said, you know, this time I do want to commission someone who will think about the violin and sort of how the violin works and sounds as, is a primary facet, not, and this, again, this is in no way a, 
a slight to other contemporary works, but so many contemporary works, they're, they're very much concerned with musical ideas and, and all kinds of things. And it just happens to be that they're played on a violin. Oftentimes you almost have to invent new techniques just to play them in, in very extreme cases, right? You know, what we call extended techniques. We have to invent new ways of, of producing interesting sounds and all of that is fine. But in this particular case, I really wanted a concerto that would be kind of a violin piece. I think that's par- part of what Corrine wrote. She wrote a very beautiful, compelling work, but it's, it is definitely has elements where it just feels like it feels like a violin concerto. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. I, I, I think that we can, if we circle back, uh, or circle back is the wrong, if we move forward, the collaborative instance where I wrote for uh, another piece that had been written for string quartet, but then it was fit for violin and piano. And that was very much a back and forth. Um, it's a, it was a ballet written called Claudel. And Chaz had asked me to create a violin and piano version of it. And so I spent a lot of time trying to take four voices and turn it into two voices, but one as a violin and one as a piano. And, you know, I did study piano for a long time, but I haven't studied piano for longer at this point in my life. And so uh, as I was writing it, I was sending my drafts to the wonderful pianist, David Korovar, and he would give me feedback. He says, yeah, yeah, this is fine. This is fine. This is a little lumpy. Would you consider something like this? And then say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I really like this. What do you think about this? Oh, that's pretty good. How about that? But, you know, the essence of the music was never changed. It was just trying to put it into 10 fingers. And I think part of the challenge was also because it existed as a string piece first, and I hadn't imagined it on a keyboard. But the other part of it is, of course, I haven't practiced the piano for a number of decades. And so I couldn't sit down and say, oh, yeah, this will work just fine. I could say, well, if I put my fingers on the keys here, I know that I could reach this. But what I can do it at tempo, I couldn't do it at tempo if I tried because I can't play the piano like that. So as a composer, you're not composing at the piano. No, mostly I'm sitting and composing in my head and putting it in directly into finale. Used to do it on paper. And then when I learned how to use notation software, I jumped right into that because I really love the fact that when you finish something, you can create parts. You don't have to sit down and then write all the parts out by hand. Um, And my handwriting, if I try, is almost legible. So I think it's a benefit (laughs) to anybody who plays the music that I learned how to use Finale. Thank you. 
And speaking of writing for idiomatically for certain instruments, I'd like to ask about Reza Valli's uh, music, which you have a lot of CDs out there, particularly in his book of calligraphy. Uh, Reza Valli is an Iranian composer, and he uh, focuses, and, and I'm sure you collaborated in this in, in, in some way, on the avaz or the improvisatory style in Persian music. Can you talk about how you created or recreated this sense of, of improvisation in the music and the DM system, which is like 2000 years old, the Daska and the Magam system. Can you kind of talk about how you adapted that to the traditional string quartet idioms and nomenclature? Um, we just work like hell with Reza. <laughs> no it's yeah it's it's extremely hard we did we we i mean we just practiced a lot and we worked a lot with reza as you as you mentioned Devin. this is an old and complicated system of music a musical system that first of all has different pitches than our western notation and of course um we just sort kind of refer to them under the uh, under the head under the heading of microtones Mm. but Unlike, you know, we're used to whole steps and half steps. And then with more contemporary music, we started having quarter steps. Mm -hmm. But we tend to think of these um, divisions as fairly equal, more or less equal divisions of the space. And of course, these Persian microtones are not even divisions. So, you know, an F quarter sharp is not where you think F quarter sharp will be even. It's so, a, I mean, it's not even F quarter sharp. It's like an F coron no. or an F sorry or something right. like that. So, right. Right. So there was a there was just so many sessions of of basically Reza saying, No, Chaz, Chaz, you're not playing the E Coron correctly. It's not me, it's me. And <laughs> wow. it, it was it was I think the very first piece we learned with him was another very humbling experience because all our lives we've been taught to put our fingers here, here, and here, and here, here, and here. And these are the 12 notes that exist. The only notes in the universe are these 12. And then suddenly it's like Horton hears a who. There's all these other notes that exist between the space where we thought there were no notes and trying to figure out like, okay, I I don't know if I'm in tune. I have to learn how to know if I'm in tune. And then if I'm in tune, do I have the certainty of where that is so I can shift out of first position to that note on a different finger? Like to to develop the confidence of knowing that I'm in tune in a scale system that I haven't grown up with. That was a it was a steep learning curve. And I mean, again, it just it shows you shows me what I don't know is always a is a good place. I don't know what I don't know, but I'm learning to uh, tickle at that a little bit more. I'm, you know, I think, I think we all sat down and learning how to play in perfect fourths and perfect fifths in these microtonal systems. It a lot of practice. And the, the other, the other aspect of his music that you mentioned is this sort of improvisatory um, tradition that he tries to capture. And, and what he does with that is, is it's pretty brilliant in a way. It's, it's at first almost frustrating because what he does is he writes in, just in traditional Western notation, uh, an extremely complicated rhythmic complexity. He has groups of seven with, nest, with triplets nestled inside, all tied over 
to a group of five and other instruments are playing groups of 13 <laughs> across this bar line. I mean, it's, he, he basically um, makes the visual aspect of reading the music extremely complicated. So at first you're not feeling improvisatory at all. What you're doing is you're, you're it's like a puzzle and you're trying to figure out where the heck these beats are and how to divide them and how they relate to the other voices. But when you finally work through that, you actually do start kind of reading past the notation and you just start to get an understanding of this, uh, of a melody, which, which might be in many cases is followed in close canon by a second or a third voice. And it becomes a very free sounding and a very imp improvised sounding kind of performance. And like I said, I think, I think, I think Reza knows full well how, how complex what he's written is. And I think he also knows that eventually when you get that internalized, what he gets then is the result that he's after, which is this kind of free, non-bar line, non-even um, pulse, like not an evenly organized kind of uh, rhythmic performance, which is what we're so used to in, in Western music. I think the, the Washington Post said it best about Carpe Diem with regards to music from Reza Valli all the way to Mendelssohn. They've never heard a performance by one of these multilingual quartets where the classical repertoire was delivered at a level on par with the finest traditional groups. Among contemporary quartets who speak in different tongues, the Carpe Diem is the best one out there. Can you talk a little bit about how playing the classics informs how you play new music and then maybe a little bit about how you are how you have and how you're currently developing audiences for new music i think it's important to not just think about how the classical informs our other things but how the other things inform our classical performance i think everything you have uh, influences from other countries showing up in classical music and nods and winks I feel like our exploration of the quartet repertoire, we've, we, we love the standard classics, of course. And um, we're very curious about other things as well. And it's, it's almost like, uh, if you think of it in culinary terms, if you only ate one style of food every day, only burgers and fries, only burgers and fries, and burgers and fries are great. They're awesome. But sometimes maybe you want chicken and sometimes maybe you want sushi and sometimes maybe you want some really spicy tikka masala. You know, sometimes you you need to expand your 
your horizons with that. And definitely musically curious. We're very musical curious folk and listen to many different things. And so I think if we're playing Beethoven and Beethoven has a, a nod to Turkish culture, well, is it authentic? That's another thing. But you know, we if we're playing something from Turkish culture, a Turkish music, then at least we know the frame in which he's trying to emulate. And I feel like they it's all interwoven that way. Makes us more interesting as performers, I think. Makes the whole um, whole experience a lot more fascinating. And I think that we choose things that we feel are authentic to who we are, and we we've been curating this audience and this this concert experience for such a long time it's built on trust that you know you may never have ever heard of this composer before but we think you're going to like it trust us live with it for a little bit and um and i think it's been i think it's been working i think it's been successful we want to make sure we play something that we can deliver um and feel that we're being honest musicians about it and uh, i think that's important whether it's it's um, something that was written 300 years ago or something that was written yesterday. That That's my take on it. Chaz, you probably have a lot to add on that. A couple of things spring to mind. One is, I think in some respects, when you play a, a new piece of music that hasn't been heard before, naturally you, have a, you feel a responsibility to play it as well as you can, but it also feels, I think, like, a, like in some cases a much freer kind of experience because uh, when you play Beethoven, you're aware of, first of all, oh my God, it's Beethoven. And it's been played by the Guarneri Quartet and the Emerson Quartet and by the Juilliard Quartet and the Hagen Quartet. And like you have the weight of, of all the history of performances and all the things we know about Beethoven. It has to be so. And I think I don't know, I don't actually know if my colleagues all feel quite the same way about this, but I feel like you sometimes have a freshness and a freeness when you're playing a new work simply to explore what you think it might be saying and how best to say that. And it's neat when you come back to a classical piece and think, I wonder if I could approach this with a little bit of that same freshness, not to be worried about the fact that everyone has heard that classical piece 200 times before versus so that's that's one thought i don't i don't know if i if i've expressed it well the other thing though is that um i think that as performers we have an obligation to engage our audiences and in particular i think we have an obligation to rebuild trust in the kinds of experiences that they're going to have in a concert hall and I know this is a, a huge oversimplification, but I think for quite a while there was a tendency for any serious classical performance group or performer to present only a very narrow swath of what was being written contemporary uh, in contemporary music. To use my some some of my friends' words, we played a lot of really academic and thorny stuff. And the thing is, and we had choice as performers of what we performed, we did perform a lot of other music that is being written in our time. There's nothing wrong with with thornier music. I sometimes love playing it. 
But I think to our audience, there there actually became a perception that, or a feeling that if they saw a contemporary work in a program, we better leave it at intermission before that's played. Um, (laughs) That's why you play that work first at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Or they just come late, come late, park the car and walk slowly. (laughs) But of course, there's a lot of great music that is being written. And that's not the, by any means, that's only one small reason of why I think we play some of the different kinds of music that we do. But it's partly because, well, I, I'll put it to the way Karina's heard me tell this story. I had at one point in my life, and this, this I'll date myself by saying this was when I still had a cassette player in my car. And I would go home from rehearsal and I would put on some country Western or some classic rock that I grew up with, or I would listen to the radio. I would listen to some jazz. I would listen to all kinds of music that wasn't classical. And um, I actually had that moment, I think, where either somebody asked me or the light bulb went off and I said, why is it that I listen to lots of music and enjoy it, but I don't allow myself to play any of it? So that was kind of my personal turning point towards being more interested in many types of music, because it didn't make any sense. Why do I listen and enjoy, but I have some skill on this little wooden box, and yet with this, I can only play this narrow segment of music. Didn't make any sense to me. And that was kind of a, yeah, that was kind of a a pivot point. I think um, to piggyback on that, all of that narrow kind of music, that narrow bandwidth that, it was new once also. And it was being supported and created for audiences who heard it the first time. And at some point we traditionally got stuck in that era I wouldn't pretend to know all the reasons why, but I feel like as performers, it's important to encourage music that's being written right now. Some of it people aren't going to like, some of it people are going to love and then forget about, and some of it people might hate immediately and then love it later, and some of it people might love now and love later. But if we don't play it, then we're like a museum. We're like a relic. And living music and living musicians, this it's important to nurture that because otherwise we're just going to go the way of the dinosaurs. We, we, we've got so much interesting, diverse, fantastic, fascinating music that's being created all the time. And so if we don't try to investigate that, try to, try to bring that in front of people, we're shortchanging ourselves and shortchanging our audiences and shortchanging the creators of music. I feel like it's, it's kind of like a, Mutual responsibility. Well, every time I'm looking up, Chaz is playing uh, new music that is very beautiful, including yours, Corrine. So I'm very grateful for what you all are doing, and I look forward to following Carpe Diem. And before we go, I just have a a really quick thing that I'm just starting, actually, called a lightning round, if you're up (laughs) for it. And I'm just going to ask you some quick questions, and you can provide pretty quick. Don't take too long to answer them. That's why it's called lightning. We'll start with Charles. Okay. What's one thing you do every day? Practice finger doctors. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not being truthful. One thing I do every day. Uh, I try to take a walk. Nice. I go geocaching. Oh, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> we can get into that in another episode, maybe a whole episode <laughs> out of that. What is the last song you listened to? Oh, it was uh, something from the Juliet Letters by Elvis Costello. <laughs> the slow movement of the Mozart 
K575. Oh, wow. Okay. Spotify, Apple Music, or Amazon Music, or none of the above? Uh, None of the above. Bandcamp. Uh, Bandcamp. Nice. Congratulations. (laughs) You perform sitting down or standing up? Standing up. Standing up. Nice. Well, thank you, Charles and Corrine. I and you have passed the first ever lightning round on one symphony. Uh, <laughs> thank you for joining, and I'm looking forward to collaborating with you both in the future and to see what Carpe Diem has in store next. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Devin. It's nice chatting with you. Thank you to Carpe Diem String Quartet members Charles Weatherby and Corrine Fujiwara and all of the amazing artists who made this episode possible. Corrine Fujiwara's Cherry Blossom from the album Montana was played by the Carpe Diem String Quartet and Fujiwara's The Storyteller, a concerto for violin and string orchestra, was performed by Charles Weatherby, conducted by Chosai Kamatsu and the Central Aichi Symphony Orchestra. For Reza Valli's The Book of Calligraphy, Carpe Diem was joined by Darius Sagafi on Albany Records. Erbeck Arielmaz's insistent music was performed by the composer and Carpe Diem String Quartet. You can follow Carpe Diem at carpediemstringquartet.com and go to onesymphony.org for more info, or if you'd like to donate to keep the music playing and support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, and share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Mm-hmm.